This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey Queeros, Cami here. Exciting news. Patreon.com slash Hey Queeros got 54 patrons. And do you know what that means? The moolah that is coming in from those patrons will now be used to cover what I have been paying Sierra. I'm super psyched about that uh, because, you know what? I could use to make a, I could use, no. I could stand to make a teeny bit of income off of this podcast. And um, it's just really nice to have a chance to have the moolah that I've been paying Sierra uh, come in through other outlets. So thank you for that. You are crushing it. Oh boy, today's podcast. (laughs) It is a chat with stand-up comic Jess Tom. If you were recently at a live show that I did on Zoom, where then also I forgot to to set it to 1,000 attendees, and instead it was just set to 100 attendees, and then I had to restart the meeting with 500 attendees, and then also add an Instagram Live. I mean, anyway, if you've seen me expand my tech knowledge uh, during this pandemic, then you have seen Just Tom open for me. Um, I love this chat, and I really hope you enjoy it. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. I always have guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Um, yeah, sure. I'm Jess Tom. I am a New York-based stand-up comic. And we've never met in person, to my knowledge. No. We haven't, right? No. But- Closest um, has been when you uh, when you had me on your te- technical difficulty show. That's what I was just going to say, is that I did, uh, <laughs> I did an hour on Zoom that you opened for, and like... I have to say that no part of my brain has fully or will ever fully adapt to the idea that suddenly I'm like my own producer occasionally. Yes. Um, Yeah. Because both of my openers, including yourself, got locked out of the Zoom because it was at capacity. And so I just had to have you join an Instagram live and then hold that up to the camera on my laptop. (laughs) Okay, Which I think so is I, the best way to do this. I thought it actually went really well. No, what were you to say? I love that because I found mm-hmm. it to be like an extremely analog solution to a digital problem. That's right. Like it was like, here's here you are on the screen. I'll just hold it up to the screen and everybody can see that. Right? Right? Yeah. It's that's how that's that's exactly right. Is that, you know, at the end of the day, you are physically on my phone sometimes. So you're a New York-based comic, and how long have you been doing stand-up? Um, I've been doing stand-up seriously in New York for seven years this summer. Oh, great. And, and I'm trying to think about like what it would be like to have this change seven years in, because for me, it's like the change from not having live shows. This is something I've yes. talked about with like other comics that are sort of my generation of comics where um i really love live performance and it's still how i make mm-hmm. a lot of my living in a non covid world but i feel like at 7 years in most comics are still like establishing themselves in a live I performance know. space i love how comedy is a career such that you can be doing it for 7 years and still be like a young and new up and coming comic. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um but how does does that feel like what does the change feel like for you for live performance to be essentially gone right now? Um That's a good question. I found that I have been pretty good at compartmentalizing through all of this. So I don't like desperately miss live performance. 
unless I like watch an old video of myself doing it. And then I'm like, oh, like that was really nice. But I'm actually, and I'm proud of uh, myself for this. I'm actually very good at adapting and I've really adapted pretty well to doing like streaming shows and things like that. Um, I will say I've set up a really hard boundary with um, like people are doing outdoor shows, shit, but mm, people right. are doing outdoor shows here now. And um, I've by the way, that's down. like just happening in New York. I mean, I think, or at least that's where I'm hearing about it. That's well, yeah, you guys can't do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, but, but, well, okay. Could, like, if, if, I think if one person wanted to do it in LA, it maybe people would do it, but this is a less live performance based city. So I think I in New say, York, it's like the engine is live performance. So I could see people, oh, absolutely, gunning for it, you know? Well, one thing that I've noticed that's a big difference between the comedy scene in New York and the comedy scene in other places, and full disclosure, I haven't been a lot of other places. I've been mostly in New York, LA, and the Bay Area. Um, but in New York, you cannot stop us. Like, we're always going to be doing something. Like, we started doing Instagram Live and Zoom shows the first week of quarantine. The first one I got asked to do was three days into the lockdown. I said no, because I was like, my brain is not wired for that right now. But people started doing it immediately. Like in New York, under normal circumstances, if you needed to find a show on Christmas Eve, you could pick from five. And like, I, I'm from San Francisco, so I go home for the holidays and I hit people up being like, hey, I'm in town, can I get up? And they're like, oh, like it's the holidays, we're not having any shows. And I'm like, that's crazy, that's crazy. I'm gonna be there for five whole days, that's crazy. I could do 10 shows. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, Chicago, which is where I started, is is pretty similar to New York. There was one time I, um, there there had been a snowstorm that was being colloquially referred to as snowpocalypse, where right, some right. people were stuck on Lakeshore Drive and actually died in their cars. Oh God! And then I, I mean, I'm not trying to say that to make fun of that. It's just a real thing that happened. And I lived um, seven miles from down from the from the city center and there were no buses running. Um, and I canceled on a show. <laughs> and the guys wow. that ran it were like, all right. I mean, wow. really? Like, yeah, exactly. They're like, uh, I mean, we're still doing the show. So like, if you don't think you can get down here, like, cool. What's your... What's up with your dedication? <laughs> I know. You're not dead in the car yet. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I also, the next night, I felt so bad because of people's reaction and my need to people please that the next night I was supposed to do a show that was, um, I think it must have been two miles from my house and I walked there. Oh, God. <laughs> I get like, like literally like waist high snow drifts. And I was like, what? That's hilarious. My, that sounds my eight like minutes. a very... That sounds like a New York experience. Yeah, it's I mean, the same I'm sure that that, yeah, I'm sure that happens in Chicago all the time, too. But I feel like so much of my experience in New York has been running from place to place in the snow in, like, dress shoes. And it's, like, SantaCon. <laughs> and I'm, like, dodging drunk Santas sliding around. Can I, um, I'm going to ask you a question right now that, like, you can always put a boundary on because I, but I think Please. you're just like talking about this pretty publicly. So have you started testosterone since being in quarantine? Um, no, I, I do frame it that way a little bit in my sets because it's a more provocative framework. I started at, at the point that quarantine started, I had already been doing it for like four months. <laughs> Which is still in the very beginning, like that it is still true that like the bulk of this first year of experience is happening in quarantine. I don't actually think I know this. What pronouns do you use? Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Word. That is what I thought. Okay, yes. Yeah, um, you asked me before your show. You know this. It's in there. I know. It is in there. Um, okay. I guess I, so you started four months before. Did you notice? Um, immediate changes. I guess I'm asking this because, like, I wonder what it would be like to have those changes. I'm curious what it is like to have any changes you might be experiencing without um, 
other people encountering those changes. Oh, it's weird. For you just to yourself having those changes happen. It's really weird. Um, Especially considering that like now I only go outside completely covered up, right? Like I'm wearing a mask, I'm wearing sunglasses. I'm usually wearing a hat too. So like I have no idea what anybody in that outside world perceives me like because I like I don't look like anything. I look like a robot when I go outside. Um it's definitely weird because it's basically just me like alone with my body. And um so I notice these changes that seem huge to me. Um like an example that I think of recently is um uh, recently I've grown a lot of leg hair for me. Um, and I previously had basically none. And now I have some and it's definitely there and it's visible. And I'm like, whoa, like, this is a huge change. It's crazy. And then um, a little while ago, I went to a friend's birthday in the park. And it was the, the only time, actually, the only time I've seen any friends this whole time, because I live pretty far away from my friends. So I literally have not been hanging out with people. And I saw one of my friends who is a white cis lesbian who doesn't shave her legs. And she had so much more hair on her legs than <gasps> I do. Eight months on testosterone that I was like, oh, yeah, perspective. Like, I just forgot, like, what other people's bodies are like because I'm only alone with my body. Yeah, and I mean, I, it's oh, go weird. Ahead, go ahead. Oh, that's I was, all. I, I'm also curious, like, the feeling of, because maybe it would be a relief. I don't know. Uh, I would imagine like if, if changes are happening and then people in your life are like tracking those changes, like, I don't know if that would create self-consciousness if it was me, like if, if people were like noticing changes in me or if it would make me feel supported, like, do you want to be seen right now and you can't be, or is it nice to not be seen for a little bit? Well. One thing that's interesting is um, actually the only person who I see regularly and like make any regular physical contact with is my girlfriend. And my girlfriend is an HRT doctor, like for real. So she, so it's like on top of being the only person who like makes any contact with my body, over the course of like six months now at this point, she also is like literally professionally trained to like notice changes and like be able to do things like track what's happening. So sometimes there are things that I don't know what's happening and she'll be like, Oh, this is like this now. And I'm like, Oh, I had no idea. Oh, wow. Huh. Is that help? Is that helpful? I think it's fun. Um, she also, I mean, she also has really good boundaries and is really like, if you ever like, don't want me to say these things to you or like, don't want to talk about this, then that's fine. But I, I love to be perceived. And actually one of my favorite, like, I love to be perceived in a gendered way, actually. Like, I think it's, I don't, you know, some people identify as being like, you know, outside of like gender or like, not having a gender. I identify more as being like very gendered and very like in gender. Tell me more what you mean about that. Um, Like which, what, what do you want to be noticed? Is it things that are traditionally thought of as masculine? Is it any gender markers? I, I just think that gendered perception is interesting. Like I'm interested in, okay, I haven't gotten a haircut this entire time. Um, I'm airing all the way to the side of paranoid right now. I really like am not leaving my house, not going anywhere, not seeing people, um, not getting a haircut. Um, May I recommend cutting your own hair in the kitchen? This is what I've done. And never. (laughs) uh, No, no, no. Trust me. If you need to feel Look, Jess, I can respect your boundaries, but let me just say, if there's ever a moment where you feel like I need to be dramatic, childish, and like a baby, what you got to do is go in the kitchen, 
and cut your own hair in a very emotional way over the trip. I cannot, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. I was about to say that is like, that is a white girl coming of age thing. And then I was like, well, I guess Mulan did that too. I guess, I guess she's the archetypical, um, cut your own hair girl. Um, I don't trust myself to do that. And my hair is really precious to me. So I'm just letting it grow. But like, I love the idea Um, this is the longest my hair has been in years. And I've been loving the idea that it makes me look kind of like a cute girl in the way that I really haven't almost ever, um, almost since I was like a child. Um, Because I've been gender nonconforming for a really, really long time. Um, And I've been loving the idea that like now when people see me and they read me as a cis woman um, because I'm on testosterone, to me, I feel more like a boy who looks like a girl, which I love rather than like, I always felt before that I was being perceived as like a girl that looked like a boy, which I just wasn't as into. I really understand what you're talking about actually. Um, I call that gender fuckage and it's what I've been pretty obsessed with for a long time. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like I have a makeup artist that I really trust and who's also a friend. And a lot of times, and, and I like to wear, I actually really like to wear makeup, but I, when I wear makeup, I, it's like very important to me that <laughs> like I, um, my girlfriend sometimes will tell me that I'm beautiful or pretty and it makes me, um, feel a little weird, but I like it. Um, oh, I love if I'm beautiful. wearing, if I'm wearing makeup, I want to feel masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, a like David Bowie is who I've always been talking about and oh, that's totally. who I make. You know, Rachel, I literally even, I mean, we've just negotiated over years that like, that's how she talks about makeup with me, which is also really nice. Um, totally. Because I love I to totally get, I totally get the makeup chair thing. I also love to get my face beat. Sometimes I think that the reason why I want to work as an actor is because I like people dressing me up and beating my face. <sighs> um And I feel like I have this funny gendered makeup chair experience where I will tell the makeup artist right off. I'll be like, look, like normally I don't wear any makeup at all. I want you to like darken my eyebrows a little bit and basically treat me, treat me like I'm a cis boy in your chair right now. And then they'll be like, okay, they'll give me whatever a like natural no makeup beat. And I'll look at it and be like, ah, you can do more than that. (laughs) Give me a little more. Um, and then we, we keep pushing and pushing it. So I always think I like don't really want any makeup, but I actually do. Um, number one, relatable. Number two, um, actually, I literally always just ask for makeup. I'm like, this is what I want. I really, really know. And I agree. Eyebrows filled in is one of the keys. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, like, going back to when you were talking about haircut, you were saying that cutting your hair over a garbage can sounded like a white girl coming of age vibe to you. Who touches your hair usually? Um, I have one person that cuts my hair. Her name is Pixie. She's extremely cool. She's from India. She's queer. She, um, yeah, a ton of my friends go to her. Um, and a ton of comics, funnily enough, a ton of comics uh, have started going to her. I think partially because... I and one other comic, Arthi Golapudi, started like sending people her way and now all the comics go to her. Um, And I love her so much and I want to support her business, but I don't feel safe going into the we work for salons that she works out of right now. Yeah, for sure. I I think I was just curious because um, that sounded like a person who has a specific person who touches their hair. Oh, absolutely. It was true. Well, I don't trust, I mean, I think, like, as as a queer person and as a trans person, my curation of my aesthetic is so important to me and so 
like sacred to me and things like haircuts i finally came to realize uh after not doing this for years and years that i can't outsource my haircuts to like straight people who don't understand what it is that i am because they're going to mold me in their idea of who i am and i don't like that i don't want that kind of haircut i want somebody who is going to be able to see me for who and what i am and be able to bring that out instead of trying sure. to change me into something else i mean me too and i also feel like it's got to be true that you said your your uh stylist is indian yeah An indian person i mean because also uh turns out that not only like transness queerness but also uh if you see somebody that only cuts white people hair, then oh, absolutely. there's that whole issue too. Well, it's really interesting. Which I don't think we talk them. about at all, it, like culturally, as in the context of an Asian person. Like, I think we only talk about that. No. Or barely, barely talk about it for like black hair. And we don't talk about hair. it for yeah. any other hair. Well, I think that that's because a lot of people and the white people who are established in the industry already tend to think of Asian hair as being the same as white hair. Right. Yes. Which is crazy because um, it's really not. And I mean, of course, first of all, well, there are lots of different Asian hair textures, lots of different, like my hair is different from my mom's hair and we're genetically related to each other. Um, but I have had the experience of white hair stylists trying to treat my hair like it's white people hair and it doesn't work. And they're so confused because it literally never occurs to them like why it's not working. I I mean, I, I hear you. I think that the the weird perception that like Asian hair is stick straight and just requires like anything that you would do to the straightest of white people hair is is what sort of prevails in that area. Oh and yeah, it's, it's I have like a very odd. Yeah, it's a very odd thing. What were you gonna say? Yeah, you were gonna say I have. Oh, work. I just was gonna say I've I've had the experience too of like sitting in a stylist chair and being like, I know that this thing that you're about to do is not going to work. Like my hair parts this way and you really want it to go the other way yeah i had one time a stylist oh this was before a queer fashion show um who was trying to pomp my hair and she was like it has to go against the natural grain because that's how you're gonna get volume and i was like it will not go that way it will <laughs> not go i promise you you should not waste your time trying to make it go in the opposite direction because it will not go and she was like no 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 like i'm a professional this is how we do this um and i was like this is how white people do this you can't do this to mine and i do this every day and i'm gonna know and she didn't it didn't work it didn't work and i don't think she ever understood why well you and i we know Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! So you're from San Francisco. I am. And when did you move to New York? Um, I moved to New York seven years ago uh, in 2013. And I basically just landed here and started doing stand-up. Uh, how slash why? Like, what was happening in San Francisco? What was happening in New York? Was it the move for comedy? 
Well, I had I had gone to college on the East Coast as well. I went to um, I went to Smith. Do you know Smith Cameron? Uh, wait. Um, yes, of course I do. I we used to play them in uh, rugby. Absolutely, you used to play them in rugby. Naturally, uh-huh. did you play rugby, Cameron? I did. I played rugby at Boston College, which was okay. a confusing experience because. When I went to BC, you could not come out. You couldn't be gay on campus. So when I joined oh, wow. the rugby team, it was a bunch of, you know, like air quotes, straight people who sure. were all like best friends with each other in groups of two. It very was good um, very confusing, to be honest. I also, um, I quit after a couple of years because I broke my ankle um, because that sport is totally nuts <laughs> it's a, yeah no it's, it's a nuts sport but the smith players were so like you know i was with the bc sort of like everybody besides me was blonde and they and that's not true there were a couple like there was some body diversity but there was a there were a lot of people on the team who looked like they went to boston college like a very specific right. sort of uh white person with blonde hair and like um we showed up, we would show up to play Smith and Smith was like, it was like, I mean, my mouth is open right now thinking about it. It was like wild. Everybody was like, was like big, like physically big. And everybody had giant amounts of leg hair and like crew cuts. I mean, it was just like, I had never, Mm -hmm. I had never seen anything like it. It was, it was very impactful. Yeah, at Smith, the two genders are rugby and crew. So <laughs> that makes sense to me. Um, did you did you uh, row? No, hell no, hell no. I rugger. Um, Which one? No, neither. Hell no, no. I am not. I am not an athlete. That is mm. not my skill. I was. I was a theater gay, unfortunately. Mm. Um, yeah, so I was I was already there. Um and I always knew I was going to do something in entertainment or performance and I knew that if I went back home I was just going to smoke weed and sit down. So I <laughs> I was like I have to move to New York. You know, it's funny. I was listening um just before this. I listened to a couple episodes um of the show and I heard the beginning of the one with Katie. And oh, she yeah. said that thing about like living in LA versus living in New York. And I was like, yeah, like, absolutely. That's exactly what did she say about is. living in LA versus living in New York? Well, I that thing about um, what did she say about living in New York specifically? She said something like, like, I'm a hard worker. I can suffer. Oh, my God. And yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Like, I moved to New York because I'm like a shark. Like, if I stop swimming, I die. So I need to, I need to keep swimming. I need something to be like biting at my tail the entire time. I need to be like running for my life. I need to be dodging arrows and like boulders and like vaulting over things and jumping around, like climbing up a wall. Like that's the way I thrive. Otherwise well, I smoke weed, I sit down. I'm really curious to hear like how that continues to evolve. Like as we stay in touch over future times, because I felt this way at a, a per, at a certain point in my life. Um, how old are you? You're let's see. You've been living in New York for seven years. You're like twenty nine, or something I am. like that. I am twenty nine. Very good mathematics, yeah. Cameron. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I so right around the time that the age that you are right now, I like was in Chicago. I had been running my ass off for a year, like literally every type of job. You know, working eight eighty hours a week. And I had to make the decision between moving to New York or LA. And I felt like I'm such an intense person that I thought if I move to New York, I will have a heart attack and die. Like, I really thought like, I will keep up with the pace and I will like it and it will kill me. And so I Mm -hmm. thought that I maybe had to do sort of the opposite of what you're talking about. Like, I thought, I think I have to move to LA to try to not, (laughs) not turn into like just a spot of grease on the floor, right, you know, exactly. um, and that has ended up that has, it has turned out to be true that like, given the space and time that LA allows, 
um, I have to work on my own anxiety, which is extremely annoying. I wish I could just like keep pace with something fast and furious and too fast and too furious because it's annoying to be with myself. I do find that LA affords me a lot of opportunity to be with myself. It's what I wanted, but it is annoying. Well, now for better or for worse, we're all getting a lot of opportunity to be with ourselves, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, I guess you're having that experience in New York. So you don't, so without the shark nipping at your heels, are you sitting down and smoking weed? I am sitting down and smoking weed. (laughs) I am doing that. (laughs) Um, But I've found that I've really had to uh, create my own shark in order to keep going. Like, oh, see, that is the thing. I have always had my own shark. It is so unhelpful on a long term. Yes, I'm I'm like I'm like turning to face the shark and trying to punch it in the nose so that it like leaves me alone for a second. But you've been creating your own shark. How is how are you doing that? Um, I don't know. This all, this all sounds very dumb to say out loud, but like at the beginning of quarantine, I was like, okay, I have to learn to use Instagram more intentionally. Mm. Um, you know, I was like, okay, my entire life is online now. So I have to really kick into gear, um, cultivating my online presence and my social media. And like, it all sounds it sounds really dumb to me to say out loud, but I am like, this is my job now. My job is to learn to use Instagram very well because I don't have seeing people in real life anymore. I don't have like going and like crushing at a set and like people seeing me like totally kill on stage. I don't have that anymore. So I have to have a really good Instagram so that people know like I'm still, I'm still doing stuff. I'm still here. Yeah, I've been, your Instagram is good. Thank you. Thank you. I gotten better at it. There's, there's a distinctive difference, uh, between the what content has, I've been putting out. What's the shift? Like if you could vaguely um, describe it. I think I just really started thinking about it more in terms of, you know, performing for a public audience. I'm rolling my eyes as I say this versus like, trying to express myself, which is what I think I was prioritizing more. And that, you know, I think self-expression is really important. And I think it's really important to have a space for that. But I started to just think, again, in a more shark-like, business-like way. I was like, no, this isn't about me, unfortunately. It has to be about, like, what I bring to my audience. Wow, that's really interesting to create a separation between performing and self-expression. That's, I mean, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody talk about that before. So congratulations. Um, because performance, I think what you're saying is, has an awareness of other. Self-expression doesn't? Yes. Yes. Um, I, I'm saying specifically like self-expression just for the sake of self-expression. And right. being like, it'll make me feel good to get this out. Mm-hmm. rather than like, how are people going to receive this? I think similarly about, you know, when you have a joke that you love that never works, it's like, at what point is it not worth it to do that joke anymore? What is your answer to that? At I'm one point, soon, is it? I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, th- I think that's a you, really interesting... Well, you probably, you, you probably shouldn't, you know, you probably shouldn't put that in your late night set. Maybe you shouldn't put it in your special. I actually think that that is how, ooh, now I'm treading into controversial territory. I actually think that that's how a lot of comics get in trouble, is that they have material that they personally love to tell, or that they think is like edgy material or like stuff that people have never thought of before. Um, And I find a lot of the time, actually, in specials, when someone is about to say something problematic, the audience withdraws, and then the comment the comic will make a comment on it and be like, like, well, I can, I can feel you guys tightening up. And I actually think that the audience withdrawing is a pretty good sign that maybe it's time to can that bit and that maybe you actually shouldn't be pushing it. I mean, I, I have to say like, Jess, this is pretty interesting stuff because so like the, 
even though we're not like so far apart in age, like I'm nine years older than you, we could not be further apart in terms of what was happening environmentally in comedy when we started. So, you know, oh, yeah. I think, I think about- of you as, as like from like an older generation of comedy than me. Yes. And also like not just an older generation, but like a, like, I think some of what you're talking about is I hear in what you're saying, the, the influence of the internet and the influence of, um, influencers. Like, that's what I hear a little bit in what you're saying. When I was, you know, sort of where you are now, the idea that a comic would ever care about the other was, that was taboo. Like, the idea that a comic would would um, even acknowledge almost that there was an audience. It's like, our job is to, like, we don't even stop, you know? It's like, like there is no and audience. See, to like, me, it's just me, you know? To me, that sounds like bad performance. Yes, Because it's I, not I don't, just you. And, like, because... To me, like com- live stand-up comedy is the most collaborative of all performance to me because it requires it requires someone to tell the joke and an audience to respond. There is to me, there is no other performance medium that literally requires that in order for it to work. So the way that I operate is always to be like, it's me and you in the room. Yeah. I mean, I actually, we share that, you know, and I will just say that that was not something that was, um, yeah, that was pretty taboo. And, and again, to your point about like what happens when comics sort of get into this like bullshit zone, it usually is because they have become, I agree with you. It's because they have become like, um, sort of obsessed with doing comedy as if it, as if it's being performed for a mirror. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think I just think about like an inner, like a social media generation of comics. I have always wondered what would, what that would change, um, for in standup, like, because, you know, YouTube and Twitter started in 2006. I was already doing standup when those things started. So like for you, to start after that means that there was never this sort of like purity of performing uh, with with no regard for your audience because people were already trying to like build their follower count to like beat an algorithm, essentially. I mean, people definitely still talk that way in that old school way. And it, I think mm. it just depends on like where you're at and what crowds you're hanging with, blah, what crowds you're hanging with. Um Like something that I think is really funny about this conversation we're having is that in my circles, I consider myself to be a very sort of old school, classical, like stand up, stand up comic, old school, set up punchline, stand up comic Um, versus because I people doing. Oh, I feel like queer comedy especially has really exploded um into just like endless possibilities like i feel like i mean look at you know julio torres is my favorite shapes that doesn't resemble anything in stand-up at all like people are doing things with soundscapes people are doing you know like characters like in a mixed media like with a background and like sound effects and like yeah, yeah, you know yeah, the, right. the the line between like cabaret and drag and stand up is really blurring. I'm like a stand up stand up comic. I got my start in clubs and bars. Uh, I started like I think of myself as somebody who started before the alt queer comedy scene in Brooklyn really blew up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was you know in those basements with all the straight guys. And there was like not even any women in the room. And like, I would be like the only woman in the room. And I would be like, why is it me? Like, I barely even count. It's insane. (laughs) The only woman here. And like, that's how I came up in stand up is in that environment, not in like a supportive queer environment. Well, I know what that feels like. And also it's funny because that has also always been here. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because 
So like that, that side of things has also always been in comedy. Like there were always people that were like stuffing a turkey with dog food. And that was their act. I've like seen that act, oh. um, you know, uh, like using a dildo. Like, I just mean, I've seen that act. That's funny. I've seen, I've seen that queer burlesque act. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so I just, I, I think that um, I'm just struck by how, I think it's actually pretty cool that what you're talking about, about the performance versus self-expression. I think it's pretty, pretty, um, I just, I, I connect with it a lot um, because it is also something that, I've always thought about, but, but maybe from a slightly different perspective, you know, when, and maybe this is true too, when you were starting, when I was starting the idea that there would be queer people in the audience, I totally. don't feel that it occurred to any other comic ever working. Like literally yes. I would be yes. up on stage talking, presuming that there were like, there's probably queer people here. There's probably here people here in like non-traditional uh relationship formats or whatever there's probably people here who um, are survivors of sexual assault like you know every topic and i felt like i was um often performing with people who were talking about things that that that's why i say the mirror thing because it was like there was a presumption that every single person in the audience was them it was so odd I still feel this way a lot about comedy. Like people are performing for each, like if it's, you know, the scene in being John Malkovich where it's like 8 million John Malkovich is being like Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. Like that's how it feels to watch a lot of stand up. So I think what I remember, you're talking about is super interesting. I mean, I've always, I've always performed for queer people in that like while I was doing this club bar basement stuff, I also was doing... I was also going and performing stand-up in, like, drag shows and, like, queer, like, poetry readings and stuff where, like, it was variety performance and it was queer community, but I was the only person doing stand-up. So I sort of, I had that world and I had my, like, club bar basement mm. world and they never mm -hmm. touched. My mm -hmm. queer world and my stand-up world never touched each other. And now, like, it's all getting sort of blurred together. Um, but I remember very distinctly that, I think the first time I was ever in what I considered to be a straight stand-up space in a club. This was at Gotham, actually, uh, in Manhattan. Um, and I had whatever, a they pronouns bit. And I was doing it and I like looked down into the audience and right in front at the front table was this little Justin Bieber looking kid who was looking up and like nodding like affirmatively and i was like <gasps> like no one has ever like i've never been on a club stage and then looked at the audience and had someone like understand from experience what i was talking about and that was the very first time i'd ever had that experience and now i have that that kind of experience all the time well not in quarantine but like in stand-up normally um yeah there's lots of different kinds of people in the audiences now. And I do lots of shows that draw more audiences like that. Whereas I didn't before. Were you scared? In that moment? No, like when that used to be your life before that moment. Oh yeah. I mean, I really thought, um, because I, um, I'm, I'm a really old queer person, like in queer years. Um, I've been out in queer years. You're an old queer person. person. Is that what you just said? I am. Oh, I am. Oh, got it. Got it. Yes. Tell me. Like, tell me like dog mean. years. Um, but queer years. Yeah. Um, as far as like the ratio of like my life, um, I'm an ancient, ancient queer person. I've been out as some kind of queer person since I was 14 years old. Um, I've been gender non-conforming in some kind of way since I was 14 years old. So I've never had like a straight adulthood or even adolescence. Um, mm. I've identified as non-binary for almost 10 years now um, and varyingly like non-binary gender queer trans for almost 10 years. So by the time I started stand-up, I was quote unquote already non-binary um, I was already, you know, going by they pronouns and everything. 
And then basically I started stand up and I, I kind of almost like went back into the closet, not as like a straight person. Cause that's unfeasible, um, for me, but as like a cis lesbian. And I was like, I'm going to have to present to the world as a cis lesbian because people don't even know like what this thing is that I am. And I don't, and I was like, it's too unrelatable and no one's ever going to understand. So oh, wow. I, and it was like easier for me to play on like the stereotypes of like known stereotypes of being a cis lesbian um, and like make my material be about that. When did that shift for you? Um, I want to, I didn't do that for too long. I started telling, I, I had like a they pronoun joke that was my intro that I did literally for years and years, like pretty much up until this past year. Um, and I'll probably, if I ever get to do a set on TV, it'll probably have to be in that too. Um, but I started telling that joke. Mm, maybe like six months in to doing stand-up in New York. And I was like, okay, now I have to tell this joke every single time. Otherwise, people aren't going to know. And then they're not going to get like the rest of my set. And now at this point, I feel like the idea, at the very least, the idea of being non-binary is not so foreign to the general public that they like don't understand it. And now I feel less whatever responsibility to have to like inform people up top. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I had to have a, I know that joke. I had to have a, like, I'm a lesbian joke for a really long time. Absolutely. Um, was, and, um, like, I don't even think I would have that joke anymore. Right. Like, I don't even know that that's fully, um, it's so much more complicated in, in, cultural discourse and also in my own understanding of myself these days. But mm -hmm. at the time, the most, you know, important thing was that I was going to talk about my relationship the same way that everybody else was talking about their relationships. And I right. had to give people a bridge because I had like longer hair and literally people did not know what was going on. I could be wearing mm. like fucking full dude clothes. And I, I just, People had no idea what was going on. <laughs> oh, no, I totally get it. I had this crazy experience back in um, like 2012. So really my trajectory with stand-up is that in like 2011, like around my sophomore year of college, I would come home to San Francisco for winter break. And that was when I started going to open mics. I used to go, um, do you ever go to Brainwash in SF? No. Sounds oh. great. Brainwash was, it's just it's the name. not there anymore, RIP, but um, it was a, like, a, a cafe slash bar slash laundromat, extremely Perfect. San Francisco in Perfect. Soma. Um, and they had, like, a woman's open mic. So I started going um, on my breaks from college. And then what would happen was people would see me and they'd be like, do you want to do my show in three weeks? And I'd be like, no, I'm going to be in Massachusetts. And I would just disappear <laughs> into the night. Right. So that's why I, I didn't get serious about it until I moved to New York. Um, because I wasn't, I just didn't have the chance to do it seriously before. Um, I don't remember why I'm telling you this. Oh, I was talking about having to tell people what was going on with oh, me yes. so that I could frame context for what yes. I was going to talk about for the rest of the set. So then, um, summer of 2012, I lived in New York for the very first time. I was interning with D'Lo. Do you know D'Lo? Mm -mm. He's, uh, he's a Tamil Sri Lankan American, um, kind of more like a comedic performer. He does a lot of like one man shows. Um, he's trans. Um, anyway, I was his intern. He really, uh, has mentored me and really like gave me a space as like a weird like non-binary stand-up comic to come into myself um but i was his intern and from doing a show with him i met this um older uh new york comic who was a white cis woman 
And I was saying to her something about like, oh yeah, I I had actually said, I don't have to explain that I'm a lesbian or whatever in my set because I mean, it's obvious. And at the time I had short hair, I was like wearing a fitted cap all the time. I actually presented a lot more masculine than I do right now. And, and that was more important to me at the time. Um, Cause again, I'm letting go of a lot of these things. Um, and she like put her hand on my shoulder and looked in my eyes and was like, no, like you look like a normal girl. You look like a normal, regular girl. And for me, of course, like I said, I was a non-binary person already to have this like straight woman look at me and be like, you look like a regular girl. I was like, it really freaked me out. It really freaked me out. So I understand what you mean, I guess, about having to explain. Because I was like, why should I ever have to explain this to anybody? Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, the things people have said to me, and I mean, it's, it's like a little less common now because just a lot of times in a work situation, people have a little more context for me. But like, if I was walking in to a situation, nobody has any context. I mean, like, literally, I'm, you know, I've had people be like, but you're not unattractive, you know, like that. Oh, God. Response where you're like, wait, what's that's even horrible. happening right now? What's happening in this moment? Or I've had every possible intro early when I like every possible intro. Um, like, do like some dude talking about wanting to sleep with me, some dude talking about not wanting to sleep with me, you know, some dude mm-hmm. talking about wanting to assault me. Like, literally, it's like, and then I just have to go out on stage and like try to say anything. And, um, I do think that it is, it has been difficult to relax from that framework, like being forged in that fire. I think I've so enjoyed having like other experiences in my life, but also. I think that experience, like that really, that like really f- formed me as a person. You know, I always walk into rooms like that now because if that's happened to you for years of your life, I think it's really hard to just um, erase that. Like let your guard down. Or just be like, I have to, you know, even in a stand-up context, like more often now I'm performing for audiences who know who I am, but like, let's say I'm on TV. Like, what are the jokes that I have to say to right. like to establish calm who you people are down you're there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know? And like that still stays. You know, it's not like that just goes away. And now I'm like it, it's not like that just goes away. It still stays. No, totally. I had the thought uh for the longest time that um and this I now realize was very naive, but as a younger person I was like, oh, I have to get <laughs> I have to get famous because that will be the way that people will acknowledge who and what I am as like a non-binary person. And then as I, I'm not famous, but as I have started to gain more and more of a public audience, I'm like, oh, actually it just means it's like a wider swath of people who are going to misgender you. It's just like more people at bigger levels. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) um, you know, Jess, I really think most people who join up with the entertainment industry in any, in any area are people who want to be seen protected by a large group of people like to, like to be seen as to be protected. You know, those things where it's like, oh my God, what if I could not have to come out all the time? What if I could be affirmed? Mm -hmm. And it just is, it's, it is, it's very disappointing to realize that like, yeah, um, more people might have context for you, but more people might hate you (laughs) or, you know, you'll move to a bigger audience and then like, um, those people won't have context, you know, like you're, you're working your way up, but there's always more people who don't know who and what you are and who don't want to affirm it. That's been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm more prepared for that reality now. Really now, I am more concerned with uh, getting to the point where, uh, getting to the point in my career where I need a bodyguard so they can um, protect me from just the coming apocalypse (laughs) as it's happening. (laughs) I just need those two things to converge. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, really reasonable. Really, really reasonable. Um, sometimes I forget how much that feeling was part of also why I started doing this job, you know, like what it felt like to walk out on stage and, and want people to know me and then get some of that feeling, but also get a lot of pushback. Um, and then I will be, I just have done, I've done very large shows where mm -hmm. people were pretty unhappy with what they were seeing. <laughs> oh God. And, and, and that is, have you had that experience? Um, I, um, this is such an asshole thing to say, but, uh, my pride and joy as a stand-up comic is that, uh, it's, it's actually kind of my specialty to deal with hard audiences. Um, and to be able to take an audience that is sometimes naturally antagonistic towards me, such as, you know, um, a group of elderly people who've come in from New Jersey for the weekend who support Marco Rubio for president um, and still be able to win them over and still be able to bring them back. Um, the, uh, but I have had very strange experiences of... Um, like one time at, um, this was probably the biggest show I've ever done still to date, as far as, uh, how many people were in the audience. I did a, it was like a fundraiser for a lesbian super PAC for Hillary in 2016. Um, and was it the, was the town hall? Oh yeah. You were supposed to be on that show. I couldn't. That's make it. right. That's right. You couldn't make it. That's right. Well, I was on that show. We would have met then. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole thing about that was so funny because it was very clear to me that they had um, really needed a diversity hire and that mm. I was the diversity hire. Like, because everybody was at least 10 years older than me, if not right. 50, 40, right. 50 years older. Right. Everybody was some sort of um, like iconic lesbian celebrity. And yeah. it was like very, very clear to me that they needed someone in their 20s who was queer in this particular way. And also yes. like ideally like a person of color in a non-threatening sort of way. So I got, you know, tokenism won out for me that day. That was a great gig for me. <laughs> um, and the headliner was Rosie O'Donnell. Yes. And um, yeah, and in front of a thousand people, Rosie O'Donnell misgendered me on stage. Oh, man. And not, like... And it wasn't an audience of people who was going to realize that that was what happened, you know? It was actually really funny because she... I don't know what happened there, but she saw my set and, like, really took a liking to me and then got on stage and started <laughs> talking about me. And I had said in my set that my family was there. And they had put my family right in the front, which I hadn't wanted them to do, but they did. And of course, like in a setting like that, you can identify my family very easily. It, they're oh. all middle-aged to elderly Asian women um, right in front. And so Rosie O'Donnell went and pointed out my family and we're like, are you Jess's family? Which my family did not want this to happen. They did not want to be put on the spot in front of a thousand people by Rosie O'Donnell. Um and so my, my like grandma was like, uh, yes. <laughs> and then she goes, did you know Jess was a lesbian? And my grandma had to be like, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, damn it. This was not what I came here to do. Oh, that's like heartbreaking. It was funny. It's hilarious. Story. I mean, it it's is, hilarious. I guess, but it's also like that person's intention and then the effect are so far apart. It's like, yes, wild, like wild. Because there's, there's the, there are the moments when somebody when somebody's intention is so clearly hateful. And I think sometimes the more difficult to deal with are when you're like, oh, no, you know, like the intention is like, and then the, the effect are so far apart. Like, mm -hmm. oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> oh. Just ever, ever, fortunately for me, like, I don't, this stuff is not that serious to me. And I do think that I like choose 
to operate that way so that I don't like get my feelings hurt all the time or get disappointed all the time. It's just a survival tactic for me. Like, okay, this is not a big deal. Um, but yeah, fortunately, every literally everything about it was so fucking funny. Rosie O'Donnell singling out my grandmother to ask her if she knew I was a lesbian in front of a thousand people um, at an event for a for someone I hadn't voted for. Like it was hilarious. Perfect. Everything about it was what hilarious. A well, Jess, this is actually we're like sort of at the end of our time, and I want to ask you before you go do whatever you're going to do today um, for you to shout out a queer smoke weed and sit down. Um, I mean, I was going to say it, but I wanted to let you. I wanted to let you. Shout out a queero. Man, that's hard. I was thinking about this, actually, because I don't really do heroes. It just has to be a, piece, a person, place, or thing that made you f- feel like you could be who you are today. So it could just be the, hero, the heroic nature could be so every day. You know what? I want to go back to what I was saying um, earlier and um, shout out my dude, Dilo, who really let me follow him around one summer when I was 21 years old um, and who really showed me from showing me his life that it would be possible for me to pursue doing this too. And like, I really do think that that is why I do it. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jess. Thanks for your time. I hope I actually meet you in person at any sort of fundraiser for any cause in the future. <laughs> I hope for that too. And I yeah. hope um, I hope it's a cause I feel good about. We'll find out. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bonus. Icing on the cake. 